In this episode, we recap the highlights of the 22 growing season, and we look how the markets will react as we turn the page to 2023. Our guest analyst, Jody Lawrence, will be joining us from Nashville, Tennessee, and he will discuss as we wrap up some of the highlights from the supply chain shortages, fuel shortages, global unrest around the world, drought and food shortages, and when we step back and we listen to the sound bites, it all sounds like a lot of doom and gloom. Despite the many challenges and setbacks that we faced in the year 22, the agriculture community rallied to ensure that this year's crop got planted, protected, and harvested. While we continue to face some challenges, it's proven to be that 22 was a profitable year for many growers across the Fruited Plains. On this episode of FieldLink, we're going to talk about a market recap for the 2022 growing season. And joining us uh, as our guest analyst is Jody Lawrence from Nashville. Jody, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back and hard to believe we're already talking about uh, a year-end recap uh, podcast, uh, how quickly the year went by with uh, all the uh, craziness that uh, we saw and, you know, what is looking to be just like another normal year in the ag markets anymore. You know, Jody, it's really crazy. You know, we launched the podcast, FieldLink podcast uh, at the Commodity Classic, and now we're into the 20th episode, and it's exciting to have you. You know, you started off, you kicked off our podcast, FieldLink podcast, and now we're going to do the 20th episode uh, focusing on the recap of the 2022 growing season. And and you nailed it. It's been a a wild ride in 22. We've had, you know, started the year off with lots of supply chain concerns and shortages and fields shortages and certainly global unrest, drought, uh, and, you know, just a lot of things happening uh, through 22. But, you know, at the end of the day, the U.S. grower, (laughs) he and she both, uh, despite all the challenges and setbacks, they persevered. And the entire agriculture community rallied around all of the challenges that we faced. And really, we had a pretty good 22 crop, and for most producers, had a pretty darn good year. Yeah, I think that's that's always a good point, uh, looking at the the optimistic side of the coin first, because there's always so many things, and human nature a little bit uh, always kind of makes you look towards the doom and gloom. But when you go back and look at what the USDA told us were the yields, uh, you know, 175.9 for uh, corn and 51.9 for beans. If you look at a lot of the inconsistent conditions, especially in the Western Corn Belt, where they really had growing problems over the course of the year, although these were both below trend, they still, if you rank top 10 yield yielding crops, they were both easily in them. Uh, you know, and I think uh, corn actually came in at uh, right on the verge of being. Uh, a top four. So it's always interesting when you get expectations that begin to think, oh, well, we're really not pulling our weight unless we do 180 bushel yield crop. We've never done one of those. And as we get closer and technology gets better, this just shows you that even in the most inconsistent growing conditions across the Corn Belt, because the Eastern Corn Belt uh, certainly wasn't the Garden of Eden all year, you end up in a situation where through wonderful stewardship of the land and of the crops by everybody that's listening, by all of the intellectual talent uh, and all the uh, new genetics that help uh, from Helena 
to get that crop into the ground through all all of our you know, great customers. You get you do get to a point where uh, it it just becomes obvious if you get rain, even if you think you're not getting enough of it or you're getting too much of it. If we get rain, one of these days we're going to come in and we're going to blow the lid off this thing. And as we transition from La Nina to El Nino, uh, kind of in this neutral zone, uh, the odds are very high in the next five years that we very likely will get a, a you know, a, very potentially a 183 yield on corn nationally and uh, a, possibly a 55 bushel yield. And that really comes down to all the hardworking men and women in the industry, uh, all of the brain power. And everything that comes together that when Mother Nature gives us a break across the entire U.S. Corn Belt, we're going to do some pretty spectacular things. And this year just highlights how good things can go, even when we think things uh, were bad. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, a lot of our podcasts, we talked about some of the different challenges over the last 20 episodes. And there were certainly a lot of them throughout the year. But as you mentioned, uh, growers certainly persevered. And many growers plan to win, you know, and that was the key. And I think it really shows through some of the yields that we've been hearing across the U.S. that when a grower really planned to win and, and you know, had a good plan with uh, their Helena representative, they did pretty good. And, and you know, certainly got to have the rain. There's no doubt about that. But when you had that plan, it, it really paid off for many of those producers. Yeah, and then you, we look at back in May and June – Corn was over seven bucks and beans were deep into the teens. And everybody looks back and goes, gosh, you know, everything that could have gone wrong was really priced in the market because then it rained a little bit. And although prices pulled back on the future side on the board substantially from it, basis never really did to where even September and October uh, during the fat part of harvest basis levels across the country were some of the best we'd ever seen. And if you equate great basis, you don't think a 175 plus national yield. And so the producers, given the opportunity, this year certainly should have been a good year because you had high prices throughout the year to sell you the remainder of your 21 crop. And for some of you procrastinators out there, maybe the last bit of your 15 and 16 crop that you moved into a position where you should have made a, should have had really good margins this year. Now, that's not to sugarcoat the part that farming's getting really expensive. read an article today that even during this summer with everything that was going on with interest rates more than doubling since this time last year, the value of average farm ground sales was up 20% over 2021. So we know people are still investing in it. We're still spending money in the industry. And even as, but as costs do continue higher, uh, you, we're going to need bigger yields and, uh, you know, a sustainable marketplace uh, so that we do not have these ebbs and flows, so dramatic exports that we're seeing this year. Yeah, you, you bring up a great point. You know, there's been some reports certainly in Iowa, some ground selling for $30,000 an acre. And, you know, there's always a story behind the headline, uh, you know, and as you mentioned, a lot of those growers, I think, were involved in some of those purchases were some of those growers that were sitting on several bins of, you know, 
two, three-year-old corn and, and did quite well. Uh, and now they've got some cash to move on, and it certainly impacted uh, some of the land prices across the U.S. And it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for many of those growers to capture some of that uh, some of that ground. And that's what I'm hearing because uh, from a lot of the local sales, the, who, who was in attendance, uh, who ended up buying it, did it become, uh, you know, two uh, frenemies bidding against each other who let ego maybe get out of check a little bit for that last you know, thousand or so an acre. But in general, it's like you say, I think you just get so, you get so few opportunities to buy good uh, farm ground, good high pro- highly productive farm ground anymore, that when they're there, people are willing to pay off because one of my smartest farmers that I learned so much through, through the years, he always said, I never bought farmland uh, at too high of a price, I just bought it too early because he was never involved in a farm deal to where that the the price the value of that ground didn't appreciate and outpace what he paid for. Yeah, there's great points there. Well, Jody, as we started the you know the front of the year, there was a lot of chatter and a lot of concerns about supply. Uh, you know, whether it be fertilizer or even crop uh, protection inputs. But you know, as I mentioned earlier, we kind of persevered. Uh, uh, we were able to, you know, fertilize that crop. We were able to treat that crop, protect that crop. It may not have been uh, plan A or plan B, but we're able to get it done. Uh, did you pick up any fallouts based on some of the, you know, the input challenges that we had this year? There certainly were some regional logistic issues and, you know, getting things to places in timely manner. And I think uh, we had a lot of worry early in the season that not enough anhydrous got put on during fall application. You know, much insane the situation or the time frame, at least where we are this year. And, uh, but there, there always seem to be concerns every year. I've never heard uh, any farmer say, oh gosh, this was my Goldilocks year. Uh, harvest was spectacular, best ever. I got all of my inputs bought early, much cheaper than the current market. Everything went down, and then I got the perfect inch of rain to settle on it. And you know, and uh, you know, my wife thinks I'm better looking because of it. I, I, I've, I've yet, I've yet to hear that out of any of the meetings that we've done. Anymore. Well, you know what, I, I guess I bring that up because I think we need to tip our hat, not just to the growers for, you know, being agile and adaptable, but boy, the entire supply chain in agriculture, uh, especially U.S. agriculture, adapting, whether it be logistics, uh, you know, the people uh, at the locations that were, you know, moving product from point A to point B in a timely manner to ensure that, you know, those crops were taken care of. So, boy, tip of the Stetson to everybody and up and down the supply chain this year uh, because, boy, it was it was a pretty scary uh, onlook early on. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, everybody really persevered, including the grower. Yeah, every, it, it's, uh, you know, whether they thought at the time they overpaid, they everybody made it through. And uh, you know, people can look back on this year and uh, you can look back over the last three or go back to, the, the year before COVID, we'll just start there. When back to what we you know used to consider normal, that there are there are always issues, uh, always have been, and the fact that they became more acute because of COVID, because of the lockdowns, because of the lack of employment potentially at some of the manufacturers, 
availability and other things. Uh, farming, uh, just much like the nature of the genetics of the crop, is about surviving. And everybody in this industry found a way to do it. And you look around, there are a lot of industries that simply didn't have our wherewithal, uh, our personal wherewithal uh, of all the you know, hardworking men and women involved in it to get through their crisis. And they're no longer industries because of COVID and the setbacks that they just simply couldn't overcome. Well, Jody, you know, throughout the entire year, you know, we were all concerned about, you know, the overall food supply chain as well as energy. Um, now that harvest is pretty well wrapped up across the United States, uh, how does our f- current, you know, grain supply look uh, from, a, you know, I guess a U.S. standpoint as well as a global perspective? Well, if you look at the big picture, the grain stocks, corn and wheat, remain historically tight. And you take that back down now to the stocks to use ratio. How much do we have in reserve as opposed to what we use per day? And uh, they're still historically tight, but what has happened is as demand has peeled back because of uh, all the numerous factors, the rise in interest rates, uh, inflation certainly taking a Uh, taking a bite out of a lot of budgets. Uh, The economic and COVID slowdown in China that they seem to be, gosh, you know, two years behind uh, where the U.S. was at this point. I'd be curious where you, what you and I were doing two years ago. We, uh, you know, I know we were working from home, but we, and we were encouraged to do so, but we weren't being, uh, you know, locked down with armed police outside of our door to make sure that we didn't stick our head out. So China presents an, an enormous uh, issue moving forward and why these historically tight levels may not play out the way everybody thinks because you can really look at China depending on, on your a glass half full or glass half empty person. Over the last year, China has been running at about, depending on who you talk to, 75 to 80 percent of normal, in some cases even less than that. And you look at where corn and bean prices are. You look at where diesel prices, you look at where fertilizer prices, all the things that are input, uh, significant input costs in our industry. What would happen if COVID or if China gets a, a handle on COVID? much as the U.S. did, much as the rest of the world was able to do in that window two years ago. If they come roaring back, which you know Chairman Z and all of his, since he's now been appointed to basically a lifetime term, that they want that desperately so that China can go back being the largest source or the largest consumer in the world of raw materials. And when that happens, you can look at what we're coming to is, okay, corn's at 625. We've had a very lukewarm participation by China. What happens when? Eventually, they will get over this hurdle. They are not going to let the you know COVID uh, just take out uh, China, however they do it, and have, whether you agree with it or not. There is a situation down the road where China and the rest of the world comes roaring back. Uh, even And that's in the face of rising interest rates and rising inflation. 
there'll be some bumps in the next you know three to six months. Maybe it lasts longer than that. Who really knows? Because I don't think anybody, certainly nobody in Washington seems to know. Uh, but we get into a, a spot where these tight supplies may not mean as much now where you would think, gosh, corn should be at seven fifty or beans should be at $15. But they will ultimately mean something in our next production cycle where we do have a dip in yields, whether it's in Argentina, whether it's in Brazil. And right now it's in wheat across all the world except Russia. And how long does the Russian conflict uh, last in Ukraine? I think that it's, uh, and I wrote about it in today's comment, just really more of a commentary uh, than a hard fact, but it's got to be incredibly frustrating for everybody in the world who watches Russia get, get their get their way with the entire world, be able to just mercil- mercilessly destroy Ukraine and still be able to export everything that they're exporting. And, uh, you know, that... It, how that ultimately balances out what, you know, do we become, if the war there rages on for another year, which it very easily could if we keep propping up Ukraine and Russia keeps backing off and we allow Russia to fund the war through selling their oil to Europe and their wheat to all of the food short uh, developing nations, you could end up in a very long uh, and unexpected timeline because I can remember there wasn't anybody who wrote or uh, wrote or was uh, on TV about it. They said Russia will go in, run run over Ukraine, and this whole thing will be over in a week or two. You know, we're nine months uh, almost to the day uh, past it, and there's no end in sight. So uh, China and Russia, as we move forward, are going to be the things that you can look at the tight stocks and say, well, another weather problem, then then we've got some big fireworks where prices could go substantially higher. But if we can get those in our rearview mirror, the demand side could come back sharply to offset whatever we get out of this transition from La Nina to El Nino, where you know South America has a record crop or things like that. So there are a lot of variables, but the demand picture, when that comes back, is going to add a lot of support not too far under where these new crop, these 23 prices are. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, I just saw some statistics here recently uh, w- looking at livestock specifically into China exporting or U.S. exports to China as relates to livestock. And, boy, it's taken a dip here the last, you know, five, six months. But we're starting to see it climb up a little bit. And I think a lot of that has to do with exactly what you said. You know, things are a little tight over there. But one thing that we got to keep in mind when it comes to China is uh, that population has now had a taste of protein, and 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 it's very difficult to take that away from a population uh, that's hungry. And uh, you know, with that in mind, if we keep our eye on the ball, there still could be a lot of opportunities in that uh, market, in that sector of the market, long term. And yeah, that and that that's absolutely true because we've made China a very good consumer of the U.S. lifestyle uh, of being able to count on good, solid, high-protein meals just by you know, picking up the phone in some cases. But it's uh, it's something that definitely once we get past the Federal Reserve raising rates, the, the 
apparent, you know, world recession that we're going to go into and China getting a handle on their COVID, the demand could far outpace whatever Mother Nature gets back to us. Jody, you touched on an important topic. You know, we saw a little bit of a roller coaster and uh, we're still kind of facing it in 22 as it relates to to credit and cash um, interest rates. Give us a synopsis on what you saw from the journey of 22 and a little glimpse of what you might see into 23. Well, we certainly know that interest rates are going to be higher and to a point where if you had uh, we're fortunate enough to get a 3% operating last, uh, loan last year, and this is more for simple math than anything, and it doubled this year to 6%. Average operating loan at a million dollars, that 3% doesn't seem like a lot, but that's $30,000. That's almost $3,000 a month that's going into interest expense as opposed to being able to go into uh, you know, improving your uh, improving your operation, hiring more manpower, more qualified manpower, and other things like that. So that certainly is going to be at the front end of what I'm looking for, and how all of the uh, all the farmers that I work closely with are going to deal with it. And as you move, that's going to be the most obvious because that's going to come right off the top. We have seen and diesel today on the futures board drop back under. Uh, 325 uh, a gallon, certainly not at the pump, but uh, a gallon on the futures price. And we have not, and that has been an area of support. Of support. So we have to figure out, uh, is OPEC going to defend $80 a barrel oil and 360 give or take, uh, diesel prices on the futures board? with cuts and being able to turn the spic- open the spigot or turn the spigot off a little bit as the Russia and Chinese developments play out in front of them. So certainly fuel costs are going to be an issue. And uh, we're, we're talking about specific examples this year where, you know, 30 years ago, uh, things may not have been as volatile, but cost control on the front end especially when we're talking end of the month review or end of the year review going into pre-pay season, that if you get a good handle on all your expenses early, it makes your year so much easier to, to deal with. And you, you're more prepared when you go to the bank and your line of credit. And there, I, I know that there'll be a lot of bankers uh, and a lot of lending institutions sharpening those pencils because they see the cost of farming. Uh, instead of renting ground for $200 an acre, it's now $75 an acre. Well, at $6 corn, you're going to have to produce 12 and a half more bushels an acre to pay that $75. Uh, you know, just on a production standpoint, obviously price could make that better or worse. But there are going to be a lot of things that every producer needs to pay attention to, and certainly interest expense and fuel expense. While they're not the biggest, I understand that, we are going to get a lot of help from the fact that we do have softening uh, world demand because of uh, a variety of factors, a little more supply and kind of talking about both sides of my mouth here, but the fact that Russia is being allowed to export their nitrogen-based stuff into the world market. We've seen a softening of price, so there may be some situations where early on, September, October, even before that, the industry was fully expecting, you know, a four to eight percent increase across the board on everything except seed. 
that we may not see that this year. I've seen a couple of people who were able to uh, do some timely bartering and picked off some prices even lower than last year. So it's going to be, uh, you're going to have to stay on top of it. But uh, it, if you can control the cost of inflation that we assumed was going to be priced into the market this year, that uh, average acre of corn in, instead of being 800 was going to be 850, maybe we are going to be able to hold it at 800 and keep it and even keep it below that. So there's going there are going to be some opportunities moving forward from everything that I've seen and to, and today and with the Chinese slowdown. The these are going to be the opportunities when prices are falling. Look at buying what you'd like to buy when prices are cheap, and when prices are rising, look at selling at what you'd like to sell at higher prices. It's just normal market cycles that you should be able to you know be able to see and educate yourself about uh, on the buy end on the sell end running your operation. Yeah, you bring up a great point. You know, uh, for some producers that are, you know, in their, I'm going to call it the pre-COVID traditional cycles, you may need to kind of step back a little bit and look at some of the new cycles that may be in front of us today. And as you mentioned, maybe you need to prepay or pre-purchase some of these product inputs a little bit earlier or be prepared to, you know, sell off your crop a little earlier than you're normally comfortable doing uh, to take advantage of the economics that are right in front of you. Yeah, I think that seasonality uh, has been thrown out of the window. And I think seasonality, you could go back uh, when we had the trade embargo with China that President Trump put on. You can go back and look at a variety of factors that, uh, that you know, you normally would say, okay, prices will bottom by X. You know, the harvest lows, which is always, you know, the, the industry standard, or you're going to get your best prices in April and May when there's the most uncertainty about how U.S. planting is going, things like that. Agriculture has become such a world news-dominated event anymore, and we have so much competition, especially from South America, Argentina, and Brazil, that you can't take a plan from 15 years ago uh, and say, boy, it always worked great when I sold corn on February 26th. February 26th may be a fantastic day to sell corn uh, it, it, in a lot of different years, but to live and die by that and not be up on all the market dynamics, because over the last two years, your best opportunities to sell have been in June, July, and then uh, typically when prices are softer, and that what we're talking about that September, October, uh, standpoint as the crops have gotten smaller. So, yeah, there, uh, old dogs, new tricks is going to be a big thing moving forward because we're in a we're in a brand new world. And when you look at COVID, China, Russia with the war raging, the world landscape is as uncertain as we've ever seen it. And you just can't say what worked, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago is going to work today. Yeah, and I think that's my biggest point is, yeah, you know, be prepared to, you know, make some non-traditional decisions that you you just haven't ever done, uh, and, but you need to be paying attention to, too, because we've got so many external forces that are new, uh, you know, upon us. You know, you referenced uh, South America. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big crop down there that's uh, now in the global market and really rallying in a lot of regards, and, of course, China, um, and, and just the overall supply chain 
challenges that we face globally and, of course, global unrest. Uh, Jody, um, as we take a look at some of the other journeys throughout this past year, we touched a little bit on energy, fuel. Uh, Boy, what a roller coaster in 22 that was. Well, I uh, pulled up the crude chart specifically for this uh, discussion. If you go back to where, let's see, on December 31st, as we were all happily leaving work uh, to go celebrate a new year coming in, uh, crude oil closed at $69.28 a barrel. Today, and granted, we got plenty of time, we've got about 24 trading days left uh, before the year ends, we closed at 70, just call it $76 a barrel. So you think, oh gosh, $7 it you know, if you just looked at it without seeing the chart, oh, it didn't move very much. That, that's fairly normal. We we topped out uh, during the inflation trade, the reopening trade, as everybody was calling it, on June 9th at uh, $108.63. And this is for this concrete. The, the spot price was actually, I think, almost $10 higher than that. And you had enormous swings uh, and to equate this to diesel. You had 50, 60 cent swings in diesel price that you could have taken advantage of by being patient and knowing that cyclically the market uh, was that these are just going to happen. No market goes straight up forever and no market goes straight down forever. You're going to get this wild volatility and simply the nature of where we are in the world economic cycle and all the political events going on. I see no reason why the volatility will go away. And volatility leads to the best opportunities when you are trying to pick off significant bottoms to buy stuff or pick off significant tops to sell stuff. Well, just the overall fuel, and then that kind of ties right into you know supply and, and logistics. Uh, we got a lot of things happening currently. You know, certainly we've talked a lot about the drought in previous podcasts about some of the challenges with the Mississippi River. It's still pretty dry. I literally just crossed it yesterday, and there's some barges moving, but boy, nothing like I, I'm going to call it normal. Uh, still some challenges there, but uh, now we're facing another big challenge with potentially some rail uh, challenges as it relates to the unions there going on strike. Yeah, it's uh, you always appreciate when your leadership, and I'm talking about the union leaders at this point, understand when you have all the leverage to negotiate and to do things. We always hear about the Argentinian port worker strike they always seem to accidentally strike right when harvest is going on and they're working the hardest and the busiest. But right now, we know that all of the rail across the U.S. and the truckers and the river, the barge operators, everybody in the entire U.S. uh, logistical uh, family uh, are so critical from what we saw during the heart of COVID to, you know, just get anything in the backups and shortages. But the rail unions... uh, the four largest portions of their, I think there are 12 union segments of it, have voted against uh, all of the major rail company owners' latest proposal. And I believe they've got till December 9th to come up with something on that. But the extraordinary fact about that is, and I've read this several different places, so I've got confidence in it, is that if the rail unions were to go on strike and just shut down transportation on all rails, 
it would have a negative effect of $2 billion a day on U.S. GDP. Just to show you that, and uh, although the GDP is you know in the in the big trillions, you're still talking about an enormous amount. And if they went, uh, you know, we already have the barge system at almost at a standstill because of Mother Nature, certainly working at a fraction of its potential. You have. Uh, whatever logistic issues, it probably is not going to hold up anybody's Christmas present, uh, but it will certainly start to impact in uh, 23, first quarter of 23, getting goods and uh, material around the U.S. that uh, unless they can come to an agreement, and this is just like everybody else, everybody wants to be paid more, and you can't blame anybody if they're working hard and doing their job in an important industry that they shouldn't be paid uh, more than fair wage. And that's what they're arguing for. I've not gotten into the nuances of uh, you know what they're doing, but it, I think it's just what everybody wants and expects now is, you, you know, you want paid vacation. You want, uh, you want paid medical leave. You want time with your family. And a lot of other things that just uh, COVID really and the work from home, uh, you know, the time period we all had, have become so much more important to us that we never it never crossed our mind to go into an employer and go, this is what I want. And, you know, you gave it to me for six months while, you, while I was holed up and I really liked it. And the genie's out of the bottle. So let's figure out how we're going to get it in our contract. And uh, while there is a provision in all of this that congressional uh, uh, congressional involvement can stop it and bring all the leaders together to where they can make them work under a temporary deal. There is the there is a, you know a very real situation where if the rail workers go on strike and it goes on for a period of time, uh, the great basis that we're seeing uh, the with the low river levels. So- yeah, and, and you know when we from an agriculture standpoint, you know I think a lot of us. Uh, here take advantage or don't quite understand that somewhere I've heard around 70% of the grain and fertilizer is transported via rail. So uh, this rail strike is a really big deal as we're wrapping harvest up across a lot of the U.S. and we're challenged, as you mentioned, Jody, with trucks as well as barges. We still got to move grain from, you know, the central part of the U.S. and uh, key parts of the Pacific Northwest all around the world, really, or around the U.S. rather, uh, to these major ports for export as well as, heck, just internally trying to get it from point A to point B to feed livestock. So uh, definitely something we've got to keep our eyes on uh, as we look at this potential strike with rail moving forward. Uh, Jody, uh, let's talk a little, shift gears a little bit here and talk about some other crops specifically, you know, uh, the cotton crop. Uh, boy, uh, a lot of, lot of volatility in that space as we look at 22. Uh, what are some summaries from, from your seat on the bus uh, as an analyst is concerned around cotton? Cotton has uh, been under the, the grips entirely of what's going on in China, because obviously China processes uh, everything that we can grow, and they are our major buyer uh, at the back end of it, despite the fact that the U.S. crop was absolutely decimated, and as a percentage, one of the smallest that they've had uh, in decades, that you 
have to get uh, kind of a, a short-term picture and a long-term picture. The long-term picture, when you're looking out to December 23 futures and the 23 prices, is optimistic from the standpoint that there just is not a lot of cotton out there. The short-term and the bridge to the long-term, the short-term problem is obviously China has got their their economic woes and their COVID problems. They need a bridge uh, to to get that solved for their consumption and production capacity to come back. And when that does, that world rebounding economy makes a very bullish picture for where December 23 prices are, uh, because where I understand it right now, there are not a lot of people where December 23 prices are right now that uh, would be making money if they put it in the ground today. So it's not very motivating for somebody who could switch acres to want to go in at the beginning of the season intentionally uh, in in the red uh, plant crop. So there's there's some things here, but uh, uh, cotton is going to drive uh, what China and their COVID issues are going to drive where cotton goes because cotton easily could go back to ninety five to a dollar on old crop and drag new crop with it uh, if China can get a handle on this. But at some point, that supply disruption in the global system from the low U.S. crop will come in slowly but surely. So I'm optimistic that 23 prices uh, will be working their way back towards a, a dollar rather than the 80 cents, give or take, where we're trading today. Well, Jody, it's definitely been a wild ride in 22. A, a lot of a lot of things that you know we didn't expect happened, and and vice versa. Uh, and I guess that's just the way uh, the nature is today uh, in agriculture, as well as across the globe uh, global markets. Is there any other highlights that you want to touch on as we uh, wrap up our our recap for the 22 growing season? No, not really. There, you know, there's so much. It's uh, it's always we all go. Oh, we'll never see another year like this. Well, we we've said that every year for about the past ten years. Yeah, probably since 2008, since the global financial crisis, we've said that about one area or interesting thing. But you know, looking forward, uh, where I would love to be optimistic and look at this and go, okay, what to look forward to in 23? What if all of these problems get solved? Then demand returns to pre-COVID levels. You've got uh, all the logistics solved, and you have a you know a, a roaring economy that the Fed now has the ability to control a little bit better than it did because we've had artificially low interest rates for so long. That would be the you know uh, the it's a wonderful life, Jimmy Stewart. Best outlook I can give on anything is that all that those two problems solved. Obviously, the war in Ukraine finishes quickly and China gets a hold of their COVID. Uh, Mother Nature is always the wild card. Uh, we never know what it's going to do. Uh, you know, uh, uh, La Nina held on uh, for about eight months longer than historically that it has. Are we going to get into bigger boom and bust cycles because of Mother Nature? Next year, uh, just... Uh, from climate outlook and everything for whatever those are worth, uh, it should be a good year in the U.S. It should be very easy potential at getting to a trend line. Uh, and 
but we all know how that goes. And after this year, I've got a bunch of people in the Eastern Corn Belt going, uh, we're way overdue for a drought like the Western Corn Belt got this year. And sometimes the El Nino, La Nina thing becomes a horrible predictor of what actually happens. So Mother Nature, the ultimate wild card. But if you look at where we are with prices and what could happen on the positive demand side, there could really be some great things that could happen for our industry in 2023. And right now, I'd lean more towards good things happening with the demand cycle picking back up than I would bad things of us being able to outproduce an expanding demand base. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, as, as things start to settle down now that some of the elections are, are completed and uh, we begin to start having some serious conversations around the new farm bill, um, 23 could be interesting. Uh, it, it could uh, bring uh, forward some some pretty good opportunities, and um, I think the big key, like we talked about here today, is be prepared for lots of changes and be able to put yourself in a position to take action, maybe in a different time of year than you're used to, but uh, be prepared and have a plan. Well, Jody, you know, as we wrap up uh, this uh, 22 uh, re- market recap, I uh, want to thank you for your commitment to joining us on FieldLink this year. We look forward to having you back in 23 and looking forward to the 23 growing season. Thank you, Bill. It's been a great opportunity for me and certainly have enjoyed doing this with you and the entire production team. Thanks, Jody. Thanks for joining us here on FieldLink for this special episode on the market recap for the year 2022. Thanks for joining us for this special edition, the market recap for the year 2022. I want to thank you for subscribing to the FieldLink podcast. We appreciate your partnership and look forward to having you join us on our next episode.